Welcome to the Les Spellman Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. All right, guys, welcome back. This is a extremely important episode to me because we have co-founder of Spellman Performance, Dylan Carrion, on here. And um, this has been a long time coming. I've always wanted to have him on a podcast because Dylan's very much in the background. Like, he's not always on Instagram probably doesn't even have it on his phone. Um, he's very in the moment, but he's one of the smartest people that I've ever been around. And uh, he was actually my first intern. And this is like even before I was really even qualified to have interns. But in 2017, I did a camp. Uh, actually, 2016, I did a camp right after the Olympics, after I worked with USA Rugby. And it was a speed camp where we invited coaches out to come learn about the techniques that we use with the USA Rugby team. And it was a couple couple hours before USA versus All Blacks, New Zealand team. And Dylan was one of the coaches that came. He just kept asking questions. I kept, you know, inch, you know, kept saying like, hey, like, I want to learn. I want to I do this. I want to do that. I was like, dude, why don't you just come intern with me? He was like, are you serious? I said, yeah, just come to California. So I gave him my number. Uh, we gave him a ride back to the stadium. And a couple of weeks later, I got a call from a Texas number. And he's like, hey, so I'm going to start driving out there. Um, in a couple of days, he's like, no way, like really. And, um, long story short, dude drove out from Texas, uh, came out to California. And at the time I didn't even really have a place to stay. So we got a really ugly Airbnb, um, that we kind of slept in, kind of slept in our cars, but, uh, we had two guys and we're training for the NFL combine and Dylan was, the, you know, there on the first day. And he actually got his nickname edge from this first day because, we were trying to find um, some equipment and we could not find it. And it was like a flood at the high school we were at and it was downpouring. And, you know, I remember saying to everyone, I was like, yo, I don't know where, I don't remember what it was. I think it was a 45 pound plate. I was like, I don't know where it is. And I look up and Dylan is gone. Like, I'm like, where is Dylan? Like, this is day one internship. Where is he? So anyway, we get started. We start rolling. And like two minutes into the training session, I see this guy pull up with a 45 pound plate out of nowhere and he basically went and sourced it and uh he got the nickname edge just because like he's edgy and he figures out how to get the job done so uh you know we're really blessed to have him we've been through some really hard times like uh two bedroom apartment with eight people living in it while eating <laughs> eating rice and and uh turkey meat from from the supermarket but yeah we've been through some hard times together and uh you know we we ate on a budget we driven on the budget we've always found a way to make things work so very excited to have him on this i had to do the intro without him on the room because he's uh he's so he's so humble that he wouldn't have wanted to hear all this but he's uh very 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 important to our company so today we're going to talk about the role of the nervous system the role of stress the role of how training affects these things and really just super compensation so how to create um you know adaptable athletes and dylan's going to speak from a perspective where he's worked from the pro level, the Olympic level, all the way down to the middle school that he runs in um in Orange County. So really excited to have him on. You guys will love this podcast. It's extremely informative. Um take some notes. Make sure you have a notebook out and then DM me questions like let's go, let's run this up. because uh, next week I'm gonna go through a ton of questions. So let's get it started guys. Um thank you. All right, so like I said, I, I didn't have Dylan on the intro because it's too humble. Uh, but here we are. We're we're all together now. So basically what we're going to talk about today is the role of supercompensation and how the nervous system 
needs to be stressed in order to super compensate and, and get the result that we're looking for. For anything that's speed and power related, um, like I said before, Dylan's done professional athletes all the way down to middle school. And right now I primarily, primarily work with our pro clients. And typically I, I, it's hard for me to understand um, the youth side to the, to the level that Dylan does. So I'm always calling him trying to figure out like what's the best way um, to implement training you know, across all levels. So uh, the first thing we'll talk about is just really Dylan's journey and understanding how, how much to stress athletes um, and how much, how much recovery they need, how much um, intensity they need, those types of things. So Dylan, do you want to give your perspective on what it was like working with professionals and then how it affected your work with the middle school athletes? Yeah, I got lucky that my first exposure working in the industry was with high-level athletes. So it was two athletes coming out. They had eight weeks to prepare for their pro day, and they hope to get drafted and go professional. And when a college football player is coming out, they're not really prepared to go straight into sprinting high speed and high volume. So they're banged up. They just had a long season. They're coming straight from a bowl game usually. And uh, as you discussed a couple weeks ago, Many of them haven't really sprinted at full speed since high school, so they're not properly prepared to go straight into it. So if we were to have them go run straight away, a couple 40s right off the bat, there would be too high of a risk for hamstrings or some type of injury. You see camps set up football players. They they brand it as a combine. They set up lasers at all ages, and a couple hamstrings go every camp just because some football players, they overreach, they cast out, or they're just not ready for those stimulus. But you'll see Carlin or some of the track guys, they'll go seven, eight times with, with no problem. So there's no risk there. Um, why I bring that up is because we initially trained these pros and we had to err on the side of caution. So agents are investing heavily in these guys, really trying to take them to the next level. So the analogy I gave there is... If someone takes their million-dollar car into the shop so you can tune it up, they're really just hoping that we can fine-tune it by a couple percent, if we can improve its stock, literally. But the number one rule is do not bang it up, do not hurt it. We've really just got to get them to pro day and get them the best chance to get signed to a team. And so we, our, our whole first eight weeks or every time we come to this combine preparatory period, we're erring on the side of caution or at least starting super low on the volume side and gradually ramping it up so they can finally perform right on time, right at the combine or if they're a pro day athlete, right on pro day. And so when we got offered to start working with some really young youth teams, middle school and even below middle school, I would just apply this. Initially, I would just apply the same eight-week training protocol that we would do with these high-level athletes and they were only getting marginally faster. And I wasn't happy with that. They should be getting significantly faster there there must be a better way to do it and when I'm when I'm looking at why is because we didn't have enough training with these with these youth athletes it was a it was a completely different time of their life and to be honest they they weren't physiologically ready they weren't even strong enough in their hips or coordination or kinesthetics body awareness to even apply some of these technique or mechanical changes that we were you know hoping to impose upon them like we do early on with these high-level athletes. So I'm lucky now that we get to do it in conjunction with their strength movement and weight room program. So I know at what week their hips are getting to this point. I, they're in conjunction and they're working together. So for instance, we've got seven, eight weeks to prepare these pro guys to run the fastest time of their life. 
from a three-point stance, under pressure, under stress, not a lot of sleep at the combine, to be honest. And and that's exactly what the agents are looking for. And we had to do it. We had to do it a certain way. But the the kids weren't ready for that. Their bodies weren't ready for it. But the kids were ready. The kids were ready for higher volume or higher training load than the pros were. And what what you're talking about with the super compensation is physiologically, obviously, if we want to make an athlete better, well, we use training to impose a certain amount of stress in a specific demand at a high enough intensity that it creates the stimulus for it to want to get better. But it's initially fatigued. You know, it tears itself down or some part of your nervous system gets fatigued. So the next day you might not be as good. But then after the training stimulus, if you provide the ample amount of rest, recovery, fuel, well, then it's what we call super compensates, which is it just adapts, it gets better. And then if you stop training for long enough, you know, you'll lose it. It'll reverse and you'll go back down to either where you started or worse. So how can we as coaches facilitate this perfect dance of stress them the perfect amount, which can create an adaptation, but it's still a recoverable amount and manage the amount of recovery and then keep them on an upward trajectory throughout throughout their career as an athlete. Yeah. So I, I remember when we first started working with Dakota and Pip and all those guys in 2017, and I told them about the story where you got the name Edge and all that. And a lot of the work we were doing was technical because these guys are coming from top schools. Well, Pipkin came from a small school, but these guys have been lifting, running. They've been doing a lot of the physical work where we knew that increasing their physical capacities within eight, six to eight weeks probably wasn't going to move the needle a ton. So we had basically had to take whatever physical capacity they had and maintain it or make it slightly better and then introduce our, our technical model, which was really based around the Ralph May model of improving the start, which is the first two steps, then improving the transition, which is steps three to 10, and then improving the max velocity, which is, te- is, is 10 to, to finish. And really breaking into those phases and being very technical about where the foot should land, where the hips should be, how far the stride lengths should be, how far, you know, how fast the frequency should be. And we obsessed over that. But by the time we got to the middle school athletes and we had a full year, it was like we spent so much time teaching a lot of the technical things we were getting, you know, with the pro athletes, but they lacked the physical capacities, which is why we came up with the three buckets, which was uh, physical, which meant developing physical qualities. Um, technical, which is obviously developing technical qualities and then stimulus. So when it came to middle school athletes, we realized like stimulus and physical were the two things that needed the most. And then you can bleed in the technical sides as they grow and as they, you know, have the ability to project their hips and switch and be reactive off the ground. Whereas the NFL groups that we have, a lot of that work is is very technical because their the physical capacities are only going to move slightly. I think actually this year in the past year we've we've been able to to hack um, the physical capacity side a little bit more, um, and and actually stress them more. Like I've stressed guys more this year than I ever have, um, and I've been riskier this year than I ever have. And the reason why is because we have data and research to to back it up. Like everything that we're doing on the force plates, everything we're doing with GPS, everything we're doing with the acute chronic workloads, like the force plates are going to tell us a lot about the neuromuscular fatigue. So I know are they really fatigued like from a physiological level or are they burnt out from the monotony of training? There's a difference. Now, burning out from the monotony of the training is still dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as a physiological like depression of the nervous system. 
uh, meaning like they haven't super compensated, they haven't recovered from the previous training block and, and getting into their, their current work. So like, I know if a guy is, is gone too deep and we're trying to regline that we're trying to go, we're trying to go deep, but we're not trying to go to a point where they can't recover from it. Um, and then with the GPS at Q chronic, I know if, am I pushing them too far in terms of the volume of high intensity work? So are we increasing the volume of high speed sprinting too fast? Or are we not doing it enough? I know based on the round of principles of adaptation that I have to increase the workloads and I have to increase their volumes and I have to gradually increase intensities to get a positive response from it. And that's what's been happening. But I know, is it too much or too little? And then obviously from, from there, then you have your subjective tests. Like we have our um, questionnaires every day. Our, you know, how much sleep did you get? How do you feel? Just answering those questions. So we understand, are you burnt out from the monotony of training? And, you know, based around that, we've been able to take the data and then push guys even harder on the field um, to the point where, you know, we're taking guys that ran 20.5 miles per hour at the beginning, and then now they're running near 23 miles per hour. And it's really because we've allowed them to get stressed to the point where by the time we recover from that, they rebound high. Now, Dylan, with middle school athletes, you probably don't see such a high swing. Um, and how do you manage that? So how do you manage a kid improving, like a micro improvement over the course of a year um, and understanding like they're growing, they're getting taller, they're playing all these games. Like how do you manage your expectations of how good they're going to get in, in a year? They're all in different points. So they all have different training age, how long they've been training, biological age. So where they are in puberty and their actual chronological age, which is based off their birth date. But you described it perfectly, the three buckets and how when Dakota Pip first came out, they had the physical qualities for us to tell them what we wanted them to change in the technical buckets, what we could do to their mechanics, how we could improve their 40-yard dash. And they had the physical capabilities already to apply what we were asking them to do mechanically and make the improvements. And you're absolutely correct. We're able to dial more and more in on the physiological side with the combine and pros this year, especially with all the technology we have to monitor it and validate it. But also, it's always been there with Dakota and Pip. There was always the sled on the end at acceleration day and then the sprints at the end as well. It was just taken for granted, or I think you got the most exposure early on for the A-series and the technical side for your for your ability to articulate it and simplify it for coaches because coaches around the country already were doing some type of sled, some type of sprinting, and they were sprinkling in drills, but they didn't know why or they, did, they didn't know what to look for. And when you broke down how to do the A-series and then you did the same with the max velocity drills, that's kind of what we got most known for and kind of got carried away with it. But the the sprinting and the sled stimulus was always there from the start. But now you've really you've really dove into in the art of acceleration how much should be on the sled. All right. How can we profile the athlete so it can be individualized? So that's that's grown exponentially. But looking back, I realized it was always there in the last fifteen minutes of every session. It yeah. just it just wasn't the emphasis or it just wasn't what we put out there and started explaining early enough. Yeah. And with these youth athletes, the buckets that we need to attack first aren't the same as with these older elite athletes. And that's what I was getting wrong my first year or so with the younger athletes. We, they need more stimulus of just running fast and we need to fill up that physiological bucket first so that then the mechanics we're saying to them can actually happen. But also if even, even if we just improve the physiological capabilities, 
they get faster just from that. So I remember that first year you would see the athletes trying to apply what we're teaching them in the A series. They'd be trying so hard you could see while they're sprinting and it wasn't happening because things weren't being introduced in the correct order and in conjunction with the weight room. And now this year, like every time we introduce a new phase, I'm holding my breath just based on how how small in comparison to my expectations their improvements were two years ago. But this year, every day one of a new phase, it's just been seamless. They're ready. We've, we understand what are the necessary prerequisites for the progression to the next phase, to the next drill. When does it need to time up? with what they're doing inside with Damien in the weight room. And it's it's been pretty beautiful on that end. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, and I, I think about a lot of the, a lot of the way we train comes down to our personality. And just like, I have like a moderate OCD where everything has to be perfect. So when I was training, especially like in the first couple of years, 2016, 2017, I took the A-series, the horizontal drills, the transfer drills. It's like everything in order. So I was like, you can't move on to the next thing until you've mastered the first thing. And it's actually a very limiting way to train. It's actually a very poor way to train. So like, I'm like, if you can't do a switch, we're not going to have you sprint. And you know what I mean? Like things like that, where I was very, very, very controlling about everything being perfect before you moved on to the next thing. What happens is as time's passing, you haven't stressed the nervous system enough. So to get a positive adaptation, you have to have a negative response from training. So if training doesn't stress, like basically take the athlete below their baseline, then they're not going to actually go above their baseline. They're just going to maintain their baseline, or they're going to go down. Um, and actually, you're going to get you're going to get worse over over time. And the longer you, you don't stress, the worse the athlete will become as as the detraining process takes in, into play. Which is kind of like first probably the first podcast where we talk about detraining qualities. So if I'm not getting exposure to qualities like maximal sprinting and maximal acceleration um power strength i'm not touching those qualities because i'm so afraid about you know the series being right the dribbles being right or not letting them run fast until they can get the foot directly under their hip it's like you're negating the the fact these athletes are high level athletes and uh at my level they, they're very high level and they they sprinted before and they they're not getting hurt, hurt every time they run even though it looks bad and i really had a lot of um miss deep debunked when i had a couple of athletes that came that ran technically bad but were extremely fast like john ross came and he ran 24 miles per hour and i had another guy run 24 miles per hour and technically if you look at like their kinograms and you look at their slow motion videos they're, they're not doing anything that really was a part of our training model and you start to understand it's like these athletes all find different ways to get to the same to the same thing to the same goal and there's really only a few things that, that matter. So we, we try to simplify the process, especially when we're teaching, to a few things that we can actually control. Like you can control someone's thigh range of motion um, by, by teaching them how to you know allow themselves to get to that range. Or you can control their front side range of motion. Or you, control how they, you can control how they strike the ground or where their trunk is. But trying to control every variable, like, looking at the angle of the of the shin when it hits the ground and everyone talked about shin angles for 10 plus years because there's a couple of people that mentioned that as being the most important thing but it's like well how do you what actually leads to that how do you get there and that's what we started focusing on is like instead of teaching the athlete like a classroom setting where you have to know every single thing in order we started teaching them only what they needed to know for that moment and really looking at it from the standpoint of like let them do the work first 
watch the work on video later that night and then come up with one or two things you're going to say to them for the next time. And you progressively teach them because what was happening with the athletes is that they would get up to the line and they would think about a thousand things and they would try to be perfect and it would look very good, but it would be very slow. Uh, we got lucky early on. We had a couple athletes run fast. I think my breakout moment was Tyree Robinson running 447 at Oregon Pro Day. And that's when I realized like, dang, like we can actually make people faster. Like we can make people run very fast um, with the right types of training. And I did way too much stuff with Tyree. Like I remember our warm up was 45 minutes. Our training block would be 45 to an hour. That's an hour 45, hour 30 to hour 45. Then we would take a break. Then we'd come back and do more drills, more technical stuff. Then be in the weight room for like an hour and a half. It's like six, seven hour days. And like, he's a monster and he was able to do it, but not everybody got that much faster. So then the next year, you know, I, I started at Mamba and I started working with like higher level guys and these guys showed up fast. I'm like, damn, like, do I really need to teach them the A series? When I had Greedy Williams, he couldn't switch at all. He couldn't switch when he ran either, but the dude ran a four, three, seven. So like, what am I going to like, am I going to stop him and say, Hey, Greedy, you can't run today because your switches aren't perfect or because their dribbles aren't perfect. The dude can never dribble. In fact, there's guys that I have right now this year that can't dribble. And I just, I just took dribbles out their program. We only have six to eight weeks. Like, am I going to spend three weeks teaching you how to dribble and preventing you from running max velocity? Or am I going to give you a wicket to run over and let you run high speed and fast? You know, so, uh, Dylan, based around that, like with the middle school athletes, like when, when have you looked at your training and been like, this is a bunch of bullshit. I need to like actually let them run fast. Like I need to actually let them go. Like what, what was that moment to find a moment for you? So we, uh, we had a youth team that, that they said, Hey, can you come and in one session, make us faster and then retest. And so it was actually two sessions. And obviously, if you know how training works, you don't get faster in two sessions, especially if they're nine years old, because on nine years old, a lot of their sprints look different from rep to rep. So that outcome's just going to be which one do they perform better. And so within two training sessions, we look back at our results and just over half of them got faster, which they should have never asked us to do that in the first place. It's a minimum of six to eight weeks now, but because just being the unrealistic perfectionist we are, we said, hey, we had a program we worked with that only just over half of them got faster when our standard is we got to make all of them faster. So we really went back to the chalkboard just from that moment, which was unrealistic anyways, but it was great that we really had to do a total reflection and revamp of everything, say what's different when you, with youth and and the elite uh, population. And that's when we realized, hey, they just need the bucket of more go, go, and they need the physiological bucket addressed. And I'm uh, I'm over-exaggerating when I say the results weren't good the first year. They just weren't as exponential as I'd like. They weren't as good as they are now as they were in last year because we're, we're always seeking to improve. So I'd say that was the moment, and it was it was nearly two years ago now but I'm still even learning week to week when to add in more. And you mentioned everything we overanalyzed early, but we weren't wrong in 2017 looking at shin angles. We were taking the technology we had at the time 
and finding what metrics could we monitor and influence that actually have an impact on the end result and what technology did we have at the time we had literally our eyeballs and the iphone was so maybe eight and there wasn't apps to go with it yet it was us manually watching it live and then manually going back and drawing what's the shin angle what what are their ground contact times what's their air time and what are their step lengths and we did that rep by rep athlete for athlete it's not scalable but it got us off the ground and i mean you you laugh whenever people come to us uh talking about shin angles and you're like what is this 2017 but they're not wrong we just now with the gps and the force plates and the technology we have we can take other drivers such as total force ratio of force drf all of these acceleration patterns we have different indicators we can look at within the technology that if we manipulate those part of what will naturally be manipulated by that is also shin angles projection air time ground contact time step length as well and so we're just improving our means of doing it and also the time it takes us to do it and the more athletes we can help more accurately and even even though i realized coming into this year i need to start the school year with the middle school with more i call it gamified it's they're kind of sprinting stimulus but they don't even realize it they think they're playing a game but it's completely the games are completely curated to the volume intensity and type of sprint that i wanted to do that day i just have to come up with a game to make it happen for that age group and then so we didn't even mention technique and when i say not even mentioning technique i'm talking about that the posture of an a hold what the a should look like until week five because i know all right we've got them in the weight room at least able to feel how their core and glutes and pelvis should look by week five didn't even mention technique till week five i started introducing dribbles week 12 13 this year and wickets started week 20 now imagine we had the pro or elite athletes come out or a seven to eight week preparation for combine and we told their agent hey we're not going to mention anything about technique at all until week five and maybe i can get them ready for dribbles week 12 and wickets week 20 we'd be fired they'd never come back to us again but this is what's correct or this is how i've been able to be most successful with this population of middle school students and in previous years i would just take our catalog and it was almost guessing when they're ready to progress to the next one and now i know they've got to be able to do this before they can move on to this so week 20 so we're seven weeks ahead of last year and i know exactly what i'm looking for uh to bleed into it so if i want to get onto wickets they've been doing dribbles for quite a few weeks now and literally two minutes i've already got the wickets set up not small wickets small small wickets so it's double small it was five for five foot seven step length for most of them with the 18 yard build it and then we go a little higher and a little less for some most people ask me like how to base it off of height i think the primary indicator of what their step length should be on wickets is top speed yeah. and i take lower limb length into consideration secondarily like obviously it's not just true top speed especially earlier on in the buildup if it, one athlete is five foot one and another athlete six foot six so there is going to be a little bit of variation based on step length but or sorry on lower limb length but top speed is the number one indicator for what lane they should be so before they hit that first wicket and this is their first day doing overhead series so 
And we actually were lucky this year that the weight room was using the PVC pipes that day. So I knew to use the tiny bands, the orange bands. And it actually ended up creating a better stimulus. I learned by accident that they have to keep the tension in this very small band. Our brand, the tiny one is orange, the one we use. So they actually had to work even harder. And it wasn't introducing something new because they've been doing posture for 15 weeks now. They've been doing pelvis control for 15 weeks now. It's just their first time doing the overhead stimulus. So I slow-mo video. They do a waterfall start. They all do dribbles overhead. And co us coaches, we check off one by one. Then no one's reaching. No one's casting out in front. Because I didn't do wickets for three years because one time in 2018, uh, Tyrell casted out in front over a wicket. And he had to miss two days. And uh, again, with the elite population, Aaron on the side of caution. And so I finally was able to ease my mind by saying, hey, what was the risk factor there? Okay, it was poor technique. And perhaps um, the spacing wasn't correct. So how can we dial that in and get it as close as we can? So once we've slow mode and verified, no athlete is reaching. They're all hitting relatively under themselves. Now you can graduate on to the wickets and first day you're only allowed to go 90% effort and you got to do it overhead and you're not just in the small lane, you're in the extra small lane and you just tell them up front the only rule, the only rule is no reaching, all right? If you're short, be short and we'll get you there within a couple months, just don't reach. It takes a lot of effort to get to 90% speed with the overhead, but don't try to go above 90, keep it relaxed and they just succeeded in that two days ago and like I said normally when I get to a new phase I'm kind of antsy and this year it was just smooth seamless all their fire series all their straight leg series that day leading into it it was like man it's like finally finally I can say I'm getting close to having a yearly model for this age group and then uh within a couple of weeks I'll start to widen and widen out the step length and you know as long as I keep the same appropriate for each athlete I have several lines set up every day. I say, hey, this guy's starting there, this guy's starting there. And I yell as they're going, all right, Micah, you can move on to red. This athlete, you stay there. All right, you regress back. So I'm, I'm, I yell it on the fly. I don't go back to the video. We don't have time for that. But as they're going through, just my coaching eye now, I say, hey, you progress the line, you stay still, you stay there. And then they hit the next rep. Yeah, that's dope. I think our, our fastest middle schooler right now, not in together ship, but is Joshua Priest. He just ran 22.7 miles per hour. How many, do you have any 22s or no? No, so last year we got to our first time four 21.5s. Vance was up there at 21.7. And uh, the Nate Curry? Yep. And Talon, Talon last week down in Spencer, he broke 21 for the first time this year. So the four athletes who hit 21.5 last year, they've graduated. They're in high school now. They're setting the tone for their high schools. And uh, we just had one break 21 this year so far. How many 20s do you got? Oh, math, uh, double digits. Like 10, 20? Uh, I'd say the end of last year was close to be 10, uh, close to be 20. And that we're just barely touching 10 right now for this year. Yeah, yeah. I know, I mean, if you don't know how fast that is, there's that's very comparable to a college team. And obviously these guys are lighter. Um, but yeah, being in the eighth grade, like, Joshua Priest, he's the one that runs 22.7. He's been with us two years now, and he started at 19. So he already came in. Like, running 19 in end of sixth grade is extremely fast. Like, that's, that's like, top percentage of, of, of your age group already. 
um, but reaching 22.7 was shocking to me. He hit that yesterday, um, at, at, actually at UCLA. Um, and like the basically our pro guys thought he was in college. They're like, there's no way you're in eighth grade. Um, I mean, no, we've had Matthew Priest. He ran 24 miles per hour before he tore his ACL recently. Um, and he's, he was on the path to try to reach 25 miles per hour. So it's pretty crazy like what's what's possible with a little bit of simple work. And what I've done as a coach recently is just look at how do I take away? So we had all of our speed labs out here in, in California and in LA watching our combine stuff. We had, how many, it was like 10 or 11 people, 11 people. Yeah, including us, yeah. So 11 of us and we're all watching. And really like when I, on Saturdays, it's almost like I'm an observer. I'm just watching the guys run and then Afterwards, they're like, yeah, we were surprised that you didn't say much. You didn't talk much. I'm like, yeah, it didn't, wasn't really much to say. Like, there's adjustments, like, move to this, move to this wicket lane, same as the middle school guys, or, hey, you, you should do a fly 20 instead of a 20. You're like, different adjustments that are on the fly, but there wasn't a lot of coaching. Uh, and what I've realized is, like, coaching is such a intervention that the more talking you do, the more thinking is going to happen. And you want to create an environment where athletes are expressing what they should be expressing versus thinking about what they should be expressing. And there, yes, there is a time for teaching and talking. Like Monday, I had the longest session we've had to date and it was like an hour, 35 minutes. And I did a lot of teaching, a lot of talking. Thursday was basically no talking. And then Saturday was kind of a mixture. So it's it's like learning when to talk is the hardest thing. Cause like, yeah, like you come in, you want to adjust everything. I think as a young coach, like you always look at, I want to make sure I'm providing value to the athlete, but the value for the athlete is the outcome. And what Dylan said the other day was like, I don't really care if you like me in the moment, like you're going to like the result later on and understand, but it's really, really, really difficult, especially for young coaches, not to feel it every single day they're out there and making sure that athletes feel safe and comfortable. Like athletes will walk away confused or upset sometimes and that's okay. Or they might be mad because you gave them negative feedback. And that's also okay. And what I was telling just basically all the speed labs yesterday was like, you have to be confident enough to understand that you can't answer every question and you can't make everybody feel secure. And sometimes you have to walk away and say nothing to an athlete after a bad rep and just tell them that was a bad rep and not try to fix it. You can't be the one that fix it. You have to allow them to explore. You have to allow them to fix it on their own and start to understand like, on week six, we're not going to fix it for you. Week six, you have to start understanding where you're at. And the more training we do, the less talking I'm going to do. So by the last week, I'm not talking. I'm just kind of observing and making sure you're warmed up, ready to go. And by the end, there isn't a bunch of drills. It's like warm up and do a couple sprints, and then that's it. So we have to get to the point of autonomy. And I've talked about this a couple of times in presentations and talks and things like that, but we can't be in the cognitive stage 75% of the way through training. You have to be at least in the associative phase where you understand what's a good rep, what's a bad rep. And we're moving towards the autonomous stage where you can, you can tell me that was a good rep or bad rep. And, um, you know, we have to check ourselves consistently. Like I have to tell, like basically we have a sign language on the field. Like it, it's a battle foot out there. You can't really hear anything because music's gone, but we'll put like our finger to our lips, like Shh, no talking, like don't talk. Don't say anything. Don't give cues. Just let them let them do it. Let them do it bad. Let them self-organize and just tell them another rep. And one of our speed lab coaches said his philosophy is three reps before 
comment. So do three reps before we talk about it, right? So just allow them to get the reps in. If you tell them something right or wrong every rep, they're going to look for it. They're going to finish your rep, then they're going to look at you on the sideline for validation. Let them do three reps. Let them self-organize. Let them figure it out. And they're going to start to be able to be on their own and do it. Because during the combine, during a game, during all these moments where there's high stress, high arousal level, they're going to fall back to their lowest level of training at certain points. And you want that low level baseline to be high enough that even if they have the bad performance, they're within 0.01 to 0.02 what they should have run. Right? You don't want it to swing by two tenths of a second. I've seen that happen where guys get on that line and they're like, wait, coach isn't here. How am I going to know if this is a good rep? How do I know that warm-up rep was good? All right. I tell my guys in the warm-up, like, you should know when you feel it, when it clicks. And obviously, like, during the training process, we try to match up GPS velocities or split times or things to tell them, give them feedback, like, yeah, that was a good rep, that was a bad rep. But eventually, they you just say, hey, like, you tell me, like, where did that feel like? It felt like 20 miles per hour. Yeah, it was about 20.1. And like we do this thing in the warm up now, I give them three runs. I say give me 18, 19, 20 miles per hour. If you can hit close to that, I'll do 10 push ups. If you can hit 18, well, I say 17, I have 18, one, I'll do 10 push ups. And my upper body's getting a lot bigger because I've been doing a lot of push ups. Like these guys can hit those numbers. I say hit 21 on the dot. These dudes can hit 21 on the dot, right? And they can do it easily. Now, you know, now they're running 22, 23s. Every single one of our skill guys is running above 22 miles per hour right now. Um, and one is above 23. So they can hit 21 and and do it pretty simply. Like they can just coast and hit 21. So the point is, is that you have to allow the athlete to, to walk away and not be happy with this at all times because we have to be confident and understand that self-organization process. They're going to go home. And they're going to think about what they did wrong. And they're going to come back with a solution. But you can't be the solution. You have to teach them early and allow them to create their own solution. Um, but yeah, Dill, this is, this is awesome. We're probably going to have to do this again a couple of times because we're already running over on time here. But um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we go? Anything else you want to comment on or, or say before we go? Man, we'll just come back again. But yeah, we can educate athletes on what's not actually a bad day what actually the goal was for today so if you've lifted 300 pounds before and you go in the gym today and you can only hit 285 you're going to leave there frustrated and you're going to say oh i got weaker and so typically when gps or lasers first started coming out athletes would leave sessions where they hit exactly what they needed to hit that session in that part of the training cycle or that part of the year and say oh no i got slower because it was 0.2 or 0.3 less than last time just a tiny percent and so we just have to oversimplify and educate on hey if you hit 95 percent or above of your top speed ever today that was the goal and we can count that as a speed training day you got faster today and there's actually five percent a lot bigger than you think so for 20 miles per hour that's one mile that's one mile per hour so if you're at 19 19.1 you got faster today and if you hit above 90%, we can count that as true speed maintenance. You prevented yourself from getting slower this week, which at some points of the year, some points of the season, that's all you can hope for. So now that the athletes have this knowledge behind, and then we say, hey, you're trying to break set a new max a couple times throughout the year for a general trend line of up. If we check your speed week to week, a general upward trend to where, hey, by the end of the year, you got 
minimum of one mile per hour faster. Some of you guys will get significantly more faster than just one mile per hour. So now they're looking at it and say, oh, okay, that's, 90, that's about 97% of my highest speed ever. Man, I got faster today. That was a great week, especially considering conditions, considering I was sore. So have it, having them, you know, approach it with that knowledge that it's not quite the same as other things in life that might be more linear, which really nothing is, that keeps them more motivated and it gives them a realistic path of what should be happening. For sure. Yeah, every, every athlete thinks every session they have should be the best session. Um, and that's why we try to, as coaches, we have to go into that session with a clear goal, understanding that it can't be the max velocity as the goal every session. Sometimes it's, Sometimes the goal is to allow them to fail. It's like go in there and fail at a rack. Or sometimes the goal is to increase the frequency, which means that the velocity will drop. But the next session, it'll be better. And I told you last week about Zach Charbonnet. We went in and he said, we want a higher range. So I went back and looked at his range. It was 10% higher than it should have been. Um, actually, not, not 10%, 10 degrees higher than it should have been. He was at 85 degrees and he should be at 75. And he ran 22.7. So this week we came back and said, I'm not even going to put a GPS on you because I know you're going to try to run fast. So I want you just to try to hit that range. We'll video it, and you're not going to run fast today. So he did a couple warm-up reps, and I said, that's it. That, that's all I want. Because next week, we're going to allow him to spin and get back into velocity. So, but yeah, this is uh, this is step one. We'll, we're going to do another – we'll do another podcast on this stuff because we have, like, a couple of stories, a couple of stories from Mexico too. So, um we'll get a chance to talk through some stuff and get and give you some fun stories over the past eight years. I don't even know how many years. How many years is it? Seven years. Yeah, just about. Just yeah. about seven years. So appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in. Share this with a couple of people and then let us know what you guys think about this. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Less Following Podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or a parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.